This episode of The Trail Less Traveled is sponsored by Osea Malibu, the original plant-based, results-driven skincare line. Every product is sustainably packaged, non-toxic, cruelty-free, vegan, and made with love in California. Osea puts your health and the health of the planet first. Go to oseamalibu.com slash Mandela. Welcome to The Trail Less Traveled, an adventure series dedicated to taking you back to mankind's earliest form of entertainment, storytelling. Missoula, Montana is a mecca for outdoor enthusiasts, and each week we will bring you tales of outdoor adventures both near and far, as well as adventure information and inspiration, and a few tunes to set the mood. You can read more about the show online at traillesstraveled.net. And now here's your host, Grand Canyon Whitewater Guide, yoga instructor, and master of the didgeridoo, Mandela. We're on location in Baja California Sur on the Sea of Cortez. We're looking out at one pretty big unnamed island, and we're at a wonderful little camp here on the Sea of Cortez that Steve... My guest today has been coming to for 13 years. He comes down here and likes to enjoy the good life, the quiet life. Steve Smith lives now in Yokayo, California. You might know it as Yukaya. It means big valley in the language of the Pomo people from that area, whom are known for their basket weaving. Steve is a bon vivant. In French, a person who enjoys good living or the good life. As John Lennon said, why in the world are we here? Surely not to live in pain and fear. Really excited to sit here with Steve today and ask him about the outdoor adventures of his life. So Steve, where did you grow up and how was outdoor adventure a part of your childhood? I grew up in the suburbs of Newton, Massachusetts, just outside Boston. It's about five or six miles from Boston. Outdoor adventures, the one I can remember most is when we were little kids going to Cape Cod. My parents would rent a house for two weeks or so in the summer on Cape Cod, a nice Cape, little Cape Cod cottage. And uh, being at the beach was such a great pleasure. Uh, the tides, the sand castles, the dunes, and the rock jetties that they had at each end of the beach to, I guess, to keep the sand from flowing away were full of little crevasses and holes that had crabs in the bottom of them. And it was great to look down there and see the crab scurrying by and then we figured out that if we dangled a piece of bait or a piece of mussel the crabs would come up and, and grab them and pull them back down to their hole and that, that was great. We could even pull them up if we had a line and they, they hooked on which was fun too. And I remember once I was playing with my cowboys around the hole. There was something in my imagination about the monsters in the hole and the cowboys coming to, to look at it. And, one of them fell off into the hole, and because it, it, it was plastic, it floated. And because the crabs were used to going up and grab stuff, the crab actually went up and grabbed the cowboy and pulled him down to his hole, <laughs> which was just like my movie in my head. Only it happened in real life, the crab, the monster actually got the cowboy. <laughs> so that was real exciting. My mom took us camping sometimes. My dad didn't like to camp. He said his idea of camping out was an air-conditioned motel room. But my mom took us with some of her lady friends and their kids. That's the first time I remember. It was nice to be outside all day and then have a fire at night and be with kids and 
sleep in the tent and wake up in the morning and not in your own bed, you know, with walls around, but walked out of the tent and there you were in the woods. That was really nice. Oh, oh, the things I liked about the beach, the sand and the dunes and the tides and the salt air and the, the crab pools and the seabirds, the seaweed. Remember, seaweed was quite a nice thing. It would come in clumps on the beach and throw it at your brother and play with it. And the salt air, there's something about the salt air that's uh, near the ocean that's different from the air around the house back home. The seafood, clams and fish and everything like that. Just nice. Just nice to be at the beach for a while. My parents joined the golf club, which had a swimming pool. And they said, oh, you can go to the pool. We don't have to go to the Cape anymore. Which was okay, but it wasn't as nice as being at the beach with the tide and everything like that. The pool was, you know, it was okay, but it wasn't as good as the beach. My friend had a family beach house near Gloucester, which is a fishing port north of Boston. About 70 miles, something like that. This wasn't in Gloucester itself, but in the beaches around Gloucester. Good Harbor was the name of our beach. And we go up there and we just have, you know, a great high school <laughs> weekend with our friends when the parents weren't around. And we'd drink a little beer, not much. We were not big drinkers. We'd make hobo stew, which <laughs> one of my friends said it was his recipe. He'd get a can of something like corned beef and then a can of canned corn and maybe chili or something like that <laughs> and put it all together in a pot <laughs> and cook it and then we have some bread with it or something like that oh it was pretty bad stuff <laughs> but we thought it was the greatest we had cooked it ourselves and we were living like hobos <laughs> we'd spend the day at the beach and there was an island you could walk out to at low tide and had seagull eggs so Sometimes we'd grab seagull eggs and throw them at each other and things like that. And then at night, we'd look for a party or walk around the town of Rockport, which was a, a kind of a touristy little village, but a nice nice little village, too. Seldom found parties, but we'd stay at home, too, and just hang out and play cards or talk and stuff. And that was fine, too. It was your peer group, and you were together, and the parents weren't around. So what could be better? <laughs> Steve, I'd like to now ask you about a moment in your life from which you walked away with a lesson. Perhaps it was a close encounter with a wild animal or a close encounter with death. Well, I can do both, animal and death. I was in the Peace Corps in Ethiopia, and I was a teacher. It was a hard job. I had six classes a day with 50 kids in each class for five days a week, and all that many kids, it's going to be a difficult job. But I, I got a bicycle so I could ride to school, which was only a half mile or so away, not really a mile. But it didn't have any brakes. It was kind of a gradual slope downhill to this, the school. I knew where I could stop with my feet and stuff like that. So crazy as it was, I was riding a bicycle with no brakes. One day I was going up from the little side road that was near my house out to the main road, which is just a dirt road. And I was just about to turn the corner, which I did every day. And all of a sudden, a group of women carrying things going to the market came out from behind that corner. So I turned to the left to go around them. And I heard this sound of a big vehicle on the road. I said, uh-oh, and I couldn't stop. And it was a Land Rover. And the next thing I knew, I was on the ground. And my bike was smashed, and my head hurt. The driver of the Land Rover said he couldn't stop because I all of a sudden I came in front of him. But he said I kind of jumped off the bike before it hit the bikes. So I automatically kind of got out of the way. But I bumped my head when I landed. But fortunately, there was a modern hospital out just outside the town run by the Swedish. And I wasn't bleeding or anything. I was 
just kind of shook up. And I went there and they x-rayed me and I had a, a mild concussion and stuff like that. I tell people I had a concussion and I had a headache for three days, but after that I was fine. I could have died very easily. I could have been mangled like the bike was mangled, but nothing really bad happened. But it made me think. There's just that thin line between life and death sometimes. So you better enjoy your life while you're here <laughs> and not have any regrets. There were hyenas that came into town every night to eat the bones that were slaughtered for the cows. They slaughtered cows and, and sold the meat at the marketplace every day, just about. But during Lent, because they were Coptic Christians, they celebrated Lent, and they didn't eat meat for that period, which was, what, six weeks, I think. If I remember my nuns telling me how long it was. The hyenas would come into town and not have this meat that they were used to, so they'd get hungry and they'd get a little strange. They would break into things and eat, grab people's animals sometimes, which happened to me. I had a, a little pet dog that the two women in the Peace Corps next door gave me, and I'd only had it a week or two, and I was sitting at their house, which was just next door, and we had the window open, and, and the dog peed on their rug or something, so they threw the dog outside on the porch, and all of a sudden we heard this thump and a squeal and a hyena had come and seen the dog on the porch which is very strange because it doesn't usually come around when the people are there and grabbed the little dog and thumped against the house at, while it was grabbing it and then ran off with it and of course that was the end of the poor little dog and then just a couple weeks later I had a pet goat that somebody had given me and I was keeping it in this Zabanyo was called out this big house out back that was kind of a storage thing made out of mud and, and sticks. And it was just a flimsy door, kind of not locked very tightly. In the middle of the night, I heard a commotion out there, and the neighbors came over and said, Oh, a hyena has taken your goat off. I thought, Oh, no, a thief has taken it. And they said, No, no, it was a hyena. And then they went down to the river and they found the rope that had been around the uh, goat's neck. So that's two animals got eaten within a week in Ethiopia. And another life-changing moment was there's a lot of poisonous snakes there. And I had this outhouse. And one time I was sitting on the throne. And I looked down and this big black snake was going from the outside and right between my feet. <laughs> and it was probably poisonous. So um, I had this club they had, they had bought, this war club I had bought as a souvenir and I went inside and got it because they say that snakes stay around where you see them. By this time it had gone outside and its head was under the leaves. I knew you had to hit it on the head to kill it. So I had kind of aimed where I thought the head was and I got it right behind the head and immediately it started swishing around its tail and the leaves were flying, the dust was flying. <laughs> I'm trying to hit this snake with the club and <laughs> my heart's going boom, 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 boom. But I finally killed it. I don't like killing things, but dangerous snakes are not a good thing to have around either. We're on location in Baja, California, on the Sea of Cortez with Steve Smith. Steve, let's play a song. Just a song that strikes you right now and reminds you of your outdoor adventures. Okay, this is a song called I Can't Complain, which I feel about life. You know, I could complain, but I can't, really. A little out of tune So lost in space Racing that moon I'm in the walls Of a hurricane Still overall I can't complain 
wanted was one chance to let freedom ring. They said I'd have to get a permit, a bunch of tags and everything. I never made it through the red tape. I got this paper hat. I got a job working weekdays. You want fries with that? I got nothing to lose, nothing to gain. It's like a one-way ticket to cruising in the passing lane. I can't complain. I was talking to my girlfriend. I told her I was stressed. I said, I'm going off the deep end. She said, God, for once, give it a rest. We're all sitting in the dugout, thinking we should pitch. And how you're going to throw a shutout when all you do is bitch? I got nothing to lose, nothing to gain. It's like a one-way ticket to cruising in the passing lane. I can't complain. You want my jellyfish? I'm not jellyfish. Our most fine bird is the pelican. His bill can hold more than his belly can. He takes in his beak enough food for a week. I wish I knew how the hell he can. <laughs> Tell me, octopus, I begs, is those things arms or is they legs? I marvel at the octopus. If I were thou, I'd call me us. Consider the duck. It doesn't cluck. A cluck it lacks, it quacks. A duck is fond of a puddle or a pond. When it dines or sups, it bottoms ups. Panther is like a leopard, except it's not peppered. If you see a panther crouch, prepare to say ouch. If called by a panther, don't anther. We're on location in Baja California Sur on the Sea of Cortez looking out at the Sea of Cortez, which at the moment is very still. We're looking out at an unnamed island, and we're on location here with Steve Smith. Steve has been coming down to Baja for the past 14 years, coming down here, camping on the beach, and living on the beach for three months on average. And we also have nearby Margarita, Steve's cat. So Steve, I'd like to now talk to you about Peace Corps which was a large shift in your life because it introduced you to new languages, new cultures, new ways to write the date and everything, a different feel because you went to Ethiopia. You went from the Boston area to Ethiopia, which is a pretty big juxtaposition here. And you spent two years there. But the interesting part is you were planning and preparing to go to Nigeria. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, that's an interesting story, too. Everything was different over there. Also, it was different because I wasn't planning to go to Ethiopia. I was planning to go to Nigeria. I think I had applied for the uh, Micronesia, the South Pacific, because I always thought that was kind of an uh, idyllic place to live. But I got sent to Nigeria in Africa, in East Africa. I decided I'd go because a couple of my brother's friends and, and other friends' older siblings had gone there actually to Nigeria in the Peace Corps and had really liked it. Nigeria had one of the biggest Peace Corps contingents at the time. So they trained us 
and people got sent to exotic locations like Utah and all these other places to be trained, but they decided to have our training in Boston, five miles from my house, <laughs> which wasn't so exotic, but it was convenient, I guess. Anyway, they trained us for three months in the language, the customs, and how to teach English. I was going to be an English teacher. And they kept delaying our program after the three months because they were having the war with Biafra. They didn't want to send us in if there was any kind of danger, of course, and if there's unrest of any kind. We actually got to the airport. We're all ready to go get on the plane and fly to Africa for the first time. And they canceled our program. They said the Russians had just given some MiGs to the northern Nigerians who were fighting the Biafrans, and the U.S. had objected to that publicly or something like that. So there was some anti-American demonstrations going on saying, you know, to support our country or something like that. So they didn't want to send up a whole bunch of Peace Corps kids in the middle of some unrest. So they said, come back on Monday and we'll find a place for you. So we all came back on Monday and they sent us all around the world wherever they needed English teachers. Some kids went and were the one history teachers. They went there and uh, people went to the Caribbean, to Liberia. It was too bad because we had kind of bonded over three months, you know, our, our little group. There was about 60 of us, I guess. And so we never got to go where we had trained. We had trained in the language, and the customs were getting anxious to see the country itself, and we got canceled. They needed English teachers in Ethiopia, so I looked on the map, and it was right above Kenya, where I knew they had all the animals. I'd seen all those National Geographic specials on the animals over there. So they said, oh, it's got to be similar. I'll go there. And it turned out to be completely different and completely different from the rest of Africa. But it was a great experience. Like I say, everything was different. The language, the people, the customs, the way they looked at life. The time of day was different. The months were different. The music, the food, the landscape. Ethiopia was very unique in Africa because it wasn't colonized. Because it was so mountainous, the armies couldn't get in there. It was very independent. They had one of the oldest lines of emperors of any African nation, Haile Selassie, who was the emperor at the time I was there, claimed he went back to the, the lineage of Solomon and Sheba and an unbroken line. I didn't know it at the time, but when I got home and reggae music started becoming popular, Haile Selassie was known as Rastafari. The Rastafarians considered the incarnation of God, like Jesus or Buddha or Muhammad. He came to our town once. And we all dressed in white, and all the kids dressed in white, and they painted their houses white and everything. Because I was a teacher, we got invited to this banquet. There was Haile Selassie. We were at the table next to him having this big banquet. And to the Rastafarians, that's like having a banquet with Jesus or Mohammed or uh, Buddha. He was a, a chief of a province, which is a Ras, and his name was Tafari, which was a common name in Ethiopia. I had a lot of students named Tafari, so he was Ras Tafari. When he became emperor in, I think, 1927, he had been prophesied that an African king would take over about that time, and he would be the one that would be the incarnation of God, that would lead the dispersed Africans in the Caribbean and, and elsewhere back to Africa, the mother country. So they took him to be the one. He never really acknowledged that cult, but he knew about it. And he flew into Jamaica in 1966 to this tumultuous greeting at the airport. There were so many people there cheering him on and, and everything that he didn't come out of the plane for two hours. <laughs> and finally he came out and they were glad that he had come to Jamaica. He never really publicly acknowledged the Rastafarian cult, but he knew about it. I led kind of a sheltered life, you know, I followed my brothers through grammar school and high school, and then we all went to the same type of colleges. All of a sudden, I'm heading to Africa. 
and I'm going to be a teacher in this country that I know nothing about because we got on a plane not having learned anything about the country. So we flew in there, and they gave us a crash course in the Ethiopian language, which was Amharic. I can still remember some of it. That means one large beer, very cold, an important phrase. <laughs> they gave us a quick course in, in the customs and, and the language and stuff like that, and the tribes and things like that which was kind of kind of fun we had already learned how to teach so that they didn't have to teach us that it was more or less the same thing teaching english anywhere the customs and the uh, language were different but they gave us a crash course and we adapted and uh, ended up in this little town eight hours south of addis ababa which was the capital called yogalam a provincial capital but it was still a small town had the, the major elementary school there so kids came from all the hills around there to go to school there it was like a plateau that with two rivers going on either side of it. I tell people I could walk down to the river, which is just the path went right by my house, and it was, you know, half mile at the most down to the river. And then there was a path on the other side going up into the hills, and I could go back 4,000 years just by walking on that path because I'd come to the people dressed in skins, you know, wearing beads and using gourds as utensils, and men had spears. They lived in thatched houses, mud walls with thatched roof houses, and it was no modern conveniences, no electricity, no implements of any kind. It was like going back 4,000 years, and that was just fascinating for me. The music, drums, was probably the first instrument came from Africa, and every night you'd hear the drums in the hills. I would ask the kids in the daytime, what, what is the drumming I hear at night? They said, oh, that's the shaman, the medicine man. He's healing somebody by playing his drums. So there was still all this uh, shamanistic beliefs and practices going on, actually. I remember one of the educated college students that was sent to our town to teach. The university students had to teach a year as part of their tuition. Them telling me that they had seen... People by the fire change from a human to a hyena to an elephant and back to a human. That, and this was a college-educated ed- guy, you know, a smart guy, sophisticated, you know, had lived in the capital and everything. He had seen a man change into an elephant and back into a man by the firelight. And other people said, well, yeah, they're closer to the earth, so they're closer to these forces, and they know more about them than we do, because we've been cut off from all that. So that was very interesting, too. Another guy that was an official, he said he would like to go with a translator and record these uh, shamans, these witch doctors, if you may, medicine men, and that they probably have all these techniques and herbs and ways of healing people that work, that Western medicine doesn't know about. He would love to go in there and research that and, and record it for posterity. I hope he did. I don't know if he did. I thought that was a great idea. I liked the idea of hearing the drums at night, and it was the shamans doing their trance-mystical connection to the earth, healing. On the holidays, mostly the men played the drums, but some of my students and everything were really good drummers, and I didn't know that until there'd be a holiday and there'd be a group of men playing drums, and my students would be there playing this great African drumming rhythm interact their harmonies and their rhythms together in a group. They'd stand in a circle and play these drums. And it was some of my my students were there that were great African drummers. So that was great too. And they had their own instruments. They had these stringed instruments that kind of violin-like. They were gourds and necks and they played this high wailing music. It sounded almost like Arabic music to me at the time, although it's a little different. But 
the Arab countries are all around there, so I can see where it is probably related to that. And then they had local songs about the provinces around there and the lakes and things like that. The buses, I remember the buses would have loudspeakers outside and they would play Ethiopian music through the loudspeakers as they're driving along the road through the countryside. So you could hear the bus like a, a couple miles off coming up the road. They would turn it up so loud that of course it was distorted and it was all, the speakers were all crackling and everything like that at this fantastic volume. It was kind of cool too because they really liked their music and they liked, liked to hear it all the time. I went to Ethiopia because I looked at the map and I saw that the animals were all in Kenya and Uganda and all those places in the south. So we had a month off. A lot of people, there were teachers in Ethiopia, would go to Uganda and Kenya and Tanzania to the game parks to see the, the lions and the rhinos and everything like that. And So we all did that. That was great. I, to this day, I can't stand to see a, a big animal in the zoo because I saw them in the wild there, just free and moving like wild animals, not like a caged beast that you see in the zoo. It really makes me sad. I, I can't stand it. My girlfriend and I decided we'd hitchhike from the capital of Kenya, Nairobi, to Kampala, the capital of Uganda. I don't know how many, a couple hundred miles, I guess. And there was a pretty good road, but uh, we had no idea what, what we'd see. And we got picked up by all kinds of people, uh, you know, some of the colonialists who really didn't like the black Africans and then there was some African nationalists who really uh, didn't like the colonialists and then just ordinary people who were just nice ordinary people living their lives. I'll never forget looking out the window of a ride we had gotten and looking over towards these tall trees and there were half a dozen giraffes in the wild eating the branches from the tops of these trees right you could see them from the, from the main road to uh, Uganda. And it just blew my mind. I thought, this is the greatest thing I've ever seen. And uh, Africa was like that. You saw things like that all the time that you never would have expected to see. There was a hot springs place just outside of the town I was in, in, in Ethiopia, that you could go and they had little rooms with the hot springs where you could go and soak, you know, and you could walk to it in a half hour, 45 minutes. The first time we did that, just at dusk, when we were sitting in our individual rooms in our hot tubs and, and the windows were open, the to the back to these trees and the jungle trees kind of sitting in the hot tub relaxing and this troop of monkeys went swimming outside the window and swinging from tree to tree branch to branch one by one as if sitting in the hot tubs i said that again blew my mind i said i like this this is this is a pretty interesting place the religions in ethiopia the main religion was kind of a coptic christianity kind of a greek like christianity kind of a formal Christianity, but they interwove their animistic beliefs too. There's the animistic that there's spirits everywhere. And uh, it was kind of cool because the churches, though they're nominally Christian and the Bible and all that, they still believe in the spirits and stuff like that and communicating with them. And you'd hear the drums in the middle of the night, like three in the morning, they'd be playing these drums at the church, which is up the road and around the corner, and they'd be chanting in the middle of the night. And it would it was really nice. I to uh, very exotic is the I guess the word to me to hear that in the middle of the night. They wore robes and they had those Coptic Christian crosses and stuff like that. It was the psychedelic area. This was '67 to '69. So uh, when I got there, I had this corrugated metal gate around my house with a wooden fence. I got some paint and I painted this kind of psychedelic design on the uh, gate just because it was in vogue and I liked that stuff at the time. 
and the, all the kids were coming up and asking me, what are you painting there? I learned the word for it's magic, uh, to catch the thief. Azmat no, lebayizal was the phrase. I still remember it. So the kids were going, oh, they said, and they would laugh, but then I'd say, oh, yes, yes, yes. And they weren't sure whether they believed me or not. But anyway, after doing this all afternoon, I was finally finishing up the gate and came around the corner was the local priest, all dressed up with his cross and his assistants and everything. And he really wanted to know what I was doing. Apparently, the kids told him I was doing magic on my gate. <laughs> he came to, to see whether I was really doing it. I think I told him it was just a design. <laughs> I'm not sure. I definitely didn't want to get in, in trouble as being the witch doctor opposed to the priest or something like that. <laughs> as an antidote to that, uh, all the other Peace Corps kids in town, I think there were seven of us. Some were teachers and some were helping with rural development. Everybody got things stolen from them at one time or another during the two years, but me. I never had anything stolen from me, and I think it was because I told the kids I, I had magic on my gate to catch the thief. <laughs> We're on location in Baja, California, Sur, speaking with Steve Smith. He's been coming down here for the past 14 years and camping on the beach for about three months at a time. Steve, let's play a song. Let's play... Maybe one by one of your ultimate heroes, your ultimate hero, as you said it. Robert Zimmerman is his real name, but everybody knows him as Bob Dylan. Well, I'll just play the first one that pops into my head. Breath of sweet, your eyes are like two jewels in the sky. Back and straight, your hair is smooth on the pillow where you lie. I don't say it's affection or gratitude or love. Your loyalty is not to me, but to the stars above. One more cup of coffee before the road. One more cup of coffee before I go. Valley below. Daddy, he's an outlaw and a wanderer by trade. He'll teach you how to pick and choose and how to throw the blade. He oversees his kingdom, so no stranger does intrude. His voice trembles as he calls out for another plate of food. One more cup of coffee for the road. This episode of The Trail Less Traveled is sponsored by Osea Malibu, the original plant-based, results-driven skincare line. Funded and run by a family of women inspired by the sea, Osea formulates botanical-powered products that have shown proven results for all skin concerns. Every product is sustainably packaged, non-toxic, cruelty-free, vegan, and made with love in California. Osea puts your health and the health of the planet first with potent skin and body care solutions that are pure, safe, and effective. Their skin-nourishing products are made entirely of plant-derived ingredients, are non-toxic and a good choice for moms-to-be. Osea stands for the elements of wellness, 
ocean, sun, earth, and atmosphere. Their entire line is built on these four pillars and pools from botanical sources around the world to create products that are truly effective. Each product is infused with sustainably sourced organic Patagonian seaweed and active botanicals that create a nutrient and mineral rich bioavailable base. Go to oseamalibu.com slash Mandela for $10 off your first purchase of $90 or more. Free shipping for U.S. orders of $75 or more and free samples with every order. That's oseamalibu.com slash M-A-N-D-E. LA, the original plant-based, results-driven skincare line. We're on location in Baja, California, Sur, on the Sea of Cortez. I'm on location with Steve Smith, who has been coming down to Baja for the past 14 years, camping here on the beach for three months at a time, on average. Steve, I'd like to now talk to you about the years between 1967 and 1997. Those years for you were spent without a car. You spent 30 years without a car. And you also don't really watch that much TV. Tell us about the beauty of that way of life and the beauty of the bicycle. Everybody knows that driving can be stressful. You know, one of the things about driving down here is that it's a long ride. So uh, I was without that stress of driving and owning a car for 30 years. I had a bicycle, and I got everywhere on my bicycle. I traveled. I got to Central America. I got to Europe. I got to Africa. Somehow I got around, and I could get enough food and everything wherever I was, so that it was a great experience, not a deprivation experience. My friends were very generous in giving me rides and things like that, but I'm probably healthier now because I rode my bike everywhere for 30 years, and you kind of got exercise without thinking about it. And it's very zen, kind of, the the rhythm of your pedals and, and your breathing. It's kind of meditative in a way. I'm sure it, it puts you in a, a better state of mind than being behind a wheel and watching out for the horns and the traffic whizzing by you. I'm glad that happened. It was because I was in an environment where a bicycle was fine, for one thing, and like Berkeley, I lived in Berkeley a long time, and public transportation was great. And also, I lived at a pretty low income level, which was kind of by design and kind of by what happened. I found out when I had a full-time job and worked a lot, I had more money, I could buy more food and clothes and things like that. I wasn't as happy as when I had free time, so as a friend of mine said, I traded money for time in most of my life which I think is a good bargain. I haven't had a TV since leaving home in the 60s for the Peace Corps. It's a box to sell you something with programs in between, as somebody said. So I don't, I don't need that. And uh, I think it does a lot to shape and conform people to the way the powers that be want them shaped and thinking about, you know, fear, everything else that they use to control. TV is a great medium for that. I won't touch it with a 10-foot pole. But I do love films. Films to me are our culture's storytelling, you know. I love films. I went to film school. I had great hopes of being a great director at one time, but that kind of got lessened. But uh, I still love films and watch a lot. I went to film school after getting out of the Peace Corps in London for two years, which was a great experience. It was the early 70s, and London was still sort of swinging, not as much as the 60s, but it was still nice. Things were very cheap. I remember going to see Alec Guinness on the stage for like a pound, like $2.50 or something like that. Alec Guinness right there on the stage. 
food was cheap. There were a lot of ethnic restaurants, Indian and Asian. and There was a lot going on. There were free concerts in Hyde Park all the time and a lot of music from the 60s still going on. And London was a nice place. I liked the English people. They were our cousins and I loved learning about film, watching a lot of film and dissecting where the chief lights were. You could tell from the shadows on the nose where the chief light was. The shadow on the nose was to the left. The light was up there on the right. Studying directors and how their techniques and collage. They do a collage, a montage actually it's called from the French, when they do a, a bunch of sequences to show a time period passing. And one of the things I learned about that is that it's like a flashback of all these images occurring in your, your mind was that it doesn't have to be chronological. That's not the way the mind works. But there'll be something that happened recently and then something older and then something recent again. And a montage going by doesn't have to be chronological, which I thought was very interesting. I've carried that with me since then, too. My last year there, I took animation because I'd always been a cartoonist. Animation was like, oh, three-dimensional cartoons that move and talk, and you have complete control over everything that happens. I thought, oh, this is great. You don't have to worry about weather or actors or anything. So I, uh, I made several animated films, and when I came home, that's what I did for about 10 years. I made animated films in the East Bay in California. I did educational films. I did a, a film with a physics professor friend about relativity called Relativistic Time Dilation. It was about how when you move in space at a, a speed approaching the speed of light, time changes for you. It was called the Twin Paradox. One twin stayed on Earth and his brother went off in a spaceship and came back. And his brother had aged years on Earth and the one in the spaceship had only aged weeks. It showed how that is true because you go into different realms of time when you're moving at a high speed. And then I made a lot of little spots for uh, environmental groups. I became very interested in the environment when I came back from the Peace Corps because that was when the environmental movement started. I had been in, this, in Africa, which was unindustrial, and it was it still had the natural beauty without all this pollution and chemicals and everything. And I really noticed the level of pollution in Western industrialized countries when I came back from that. So I figured that was a, an important thing to work for. That's one thing I'll spend my life doing is trying to protect the environment. And I worked on the first Earth Day in Washington, D.C. It was called Environmental Teaching at first, and then they changed it to Earth Day. I was their staff artist. After I got out of film school, I ended up doing uh, TV spots for Friends of the Earth, for California Tomorrow bunch of environmental groups. I even got to meet one of my mentors and idols, Pete Seeger, because I got invited to the Friends of the Earth Christmas party because I had done that film for them. And Pete Seeger had just played in town the night before, so they invited him to the party. And there he was at the party with Malvina Reynolds, who was a protest singer in her late 70s, who wrote Little Boxes, which Pete Seeger had done. Little Boxes on the Hillside, all made out of ticky-tacky, and they all looked just the same. It was about Daly City in San Francisco. So anyway, there I was at the party with Pete Seeger and Malvino Reynolds, who I'd known for years. I love Pete Seeger. He's the one who got me playing the guitar. His folk singer's guitar guide was a record and instruction book that I learned how to play the guitar from. So after everybody had eaten the buffet and everything, Pete Seeger sat down on the rug in the middle of the room, not in a chair, pulled out his banjo and started playing, and Malvina Reynolds pulled out her guitar, and they both played together exchanging songs and then people in the audience organization also had guitars and there was like a round robin with Pete Seeger and Malvina Reynolds. I was ecstatic. 
We're on location in Baja, California with Steve Smith. Steve, you've been coming down here and camping on this beach for the past 14 years. Every year you come down and spend at least three months down here. Tell me what you're looking at right now. I'm looking at the Sea of Cortez over our beach, which is kind of a rocky beach with uh, fist-sized rocks. And they're mostly gray, but they have these nice pastel shades of pink and blue and green also. And then just beyond that is this nice light blue Sea of Cortez with a brownish mountainous island in the distance. And then the sky is cloudless today. The sun's out and the sky is the same color as the ocean, only it's a lighter blue, a lighter blue. So it's, it's just a beautiful day. It's very calm. It can be very windy here. But today is nice and calm and time to get out on the water, as people say. Get on your kayak or your boat or just swimming. It's a nice day for anything on the water. I like Baja. I tell people it's, it's like you come to the end of the earth. At night here, you can't see any cities. You can't see any towns. You can't see any lights at all. There's a little lighthouse where the current is by the island way out there. And that little dim light at night, that's about all you can see. An occasional ship may pass, but not, not very often. And it's black with stars and no light. If you look at the uh, National Geographic map about light pollution and where the light is the most prevalent in the world, you notice Baja is almost dark compared to the rest of the world, which I like. I, th I like it dark, the velvety dark of the night. Baja, yes, it's... Uh, I tell people, they say, what's, what's the weather like? I said, well, the weather in the winter... It's not hot. It's not tropical here. It's in the 70s, but because you're this far south, the sun is hot. So if, as long as the sun is hot, it's really nice. It, it's this dry heat. It'll go into the 80s, perhaps, but never in the 90s. And as long as the wind's not blowing, it's just very pleasant. So you can go swimming. I tried to go swimming every day, and I, I did it just about last year. And I'm, So far, I'm on track to doing it this year, too. And it always feels good. I'm never sorry I go in the ocean, even when the wind's blowing and it's a cool day. It always feels great. The Sea of Cortez was one of the richest fish areas in the world. It still is. It's been a little hammered by the overfishing, like everywhere else. But it's still full of life. You can sit here in the morning drinking your tea, and the fish will be jumping, and the, the seabirds will be diving, and there's an occasional solo sea lion that swims by. We call him Bob. He swam by yesterday afternoon about 10 feet from the shore, Popping his head up every once in a while and swimming by. Was it this morning? Yeah, he's probably this morning too. And the blue-footed boobies? Somebody told me there's no blue-footed boobies outside of South America, but they're here in Baja in great numbers. They'll dive from about 40 or 50 feet up. They pull in their wings and become a, a sharp javelin torpedo shape, and they must be going about 50 miles an hour when they hit the water, and they make this narrow splash, and I'm not sure how far they go down, but it's almost always come up with a fish that they're swallowing, and then they take off and do it again. You see this every day. <laughs> and the pelicans, the pelicans will dive in groups sometimes at a school of fish, and uh, the frigate birds, these frigate birds look like pterodactyl dinosaur birds. They're, they have these pointed wings. They have a, a scissors tail. I think the Mexican name for them is scissors because their tails looks like the scissors. And these big, big beaks that have a little curve at the end. And often they'll have a white throat and be black. And they, they just soar. They catch the currents and they soar around and around. Sometimes you'll see like 
40 of them together above the cliff as the upwelling of the air is thermal. They're catching it and riding it in a swirling spiral, up and up and up. It almost makes you wish you were a frigate bird. <laughs> oh, the octopus, yeah. I had a great encounter with an octopus here about three or four years ago. It was low tide. I was walking by myself, and uh, I walked out to a rock that had been covered up in, in water, but it was uncovered now. It was flat, and I was just looking at this kind of pool that was surrounded by big rocks. And there was a little fish in there, so I was watching the fish, and it, it was calm, so I could see right through the water and see the fish and the colors and everything. And I sat there for maybe 10 minutes or so, and all of a sudden this octopus came out from this hole and came out and sat right in front of me in the middle of this pool. And I didn't move, and he didn't move for a while. And then all of a sudden he spread out his tentacles and the little mantle around their head and started changing colors as he moved over different parts of the rocks on the bottom and the coral and the plants. And he'd be at over kind of a reddish rock and most of them would be red and then his rear tentacles would be over a green rock and where he was above the green rock his tentacles would be green and as he moved it would change instantaneously it was just amazing it's just all these colors it, he'd disappear he'd be kind of grayish or red and then he'd change to the green color that he was on top of it you couldn't see him unless he moved and i thought this is just amazing because they don't have a skeleton, they can squeeze into all these shapes. So it it would become a umbrella shape, and then it would become a thin jelly-like shape, and then a moving back and forth shape, a, a pulsating shape. And every once in a while, he'd jet the water through his little uh, tube and become like a comet, you know, with a big head with the tentacles trailing behind him and jet to the other side of the pool. And at one point, he'd go down to the bottom and stick his tentacles underneath the rock to get the stuff he ate, which was mostly crustaceans, I think, and whatever he could catch, probably. It was just so amazing. I got to watch him for about a half hour before the wind came up, and he went away. And I won't eat octopus now because they're just an amazing creature. I've heard all kinds of stories about how intelligent they are, too. But something that can change shape, change color, and be intelligent deserves my respect. I'm not going to eat octopus ever again, I don't think. We're here in Baja, California, speaking with Steve Smith on the beach. Steve, let's play a song about Baja. I think of it as a snorkeling song. I also introduce it pretty often as a, an old sea shanty from the British Isles. So here it goes. I'd like to be under the sea In an octopus's garden in the shade Let us in, knows where we've been, in his octopus's garden in the shade. I'd ask my friends to come and see that octopus's garden with me. I'd like to be under the sea in an octopus's garden the shade We would be warm below the storm our little hideaway beneath the waves Resting our head on the seabed Octopus's garden 
hurricane We would sing and dance around Because we know we can't be found I'd like to be under the sea In an octopus's garden in the shade about the coral that lies beneath the waves beneath the ocean oh what joy for every girl and boy knowing we're happy and we're safe we would be so happy you and me no one there to tell us what to do I'd like to be under the sea in an octopus's garden with you. In an octopus's garden with you. In an octopus's garden with you. Thank you so much, Steve, for spending the morning with me here in Baja and doing the show with me. I'd like to end the show with three outdoor adventure tips. All right, outdoor tips. Well, I would say one of them is have time and be spontaneous if you can. Not schedule everything too tight so you can go where you want, when you want, and stay longer if you need to stay longer and change your plans and go somewhere else if something else comes up. The second one I would say is be comfortable. Make sure you have enough warm clothes. If it gets cold, I always make sure I have at least three things when I go hiking or outside somewhere. Food, warm clothes, and something to write in, uh, to, to dry in. I always have my sketchbook with me. Because if it's a nice place and you're enjoying it, why should you have to go home to eat or to get warm clothes? You can just spend more time in a beautiful place. If you have food with you and, and warm clothes and you never know some of my best ideas come when I'm hiking or outside and it's nice to be able to write those down or sketch something that's really beautiful that you want to remember so it's always important to have a book like that and the third would be let's see what was the third <laughs> appreciate it just say to yourself I'm really lucky to be here, and this is beautiful, and I'm glad I'm here. So I try to say that to myself. Be conscious that you're in something that's beautiful and worth being around, and appreciate it and look at it and absorb it as much as you can. Wonderful. Steve, I'd like to end the show with a song, one of my favorite ones that you wrote, and it's about uh, here in Baja. It took place just north of here on the coast, right there on the rocks. And first I want you to explain the story and then we'll play it. Okay, this, this is a song about an adventure that happened here. There's a woman named Shauna who camps near us here all the time, who's really a nature girl. She's always out fishing and, and diving and loves to be in nature in, in the ocean. And she goes out by herself at night diving in the dark for lobsters. And lobsters live in caves and holes in the rocks and there's a denizen that also lives in these holes in the rocks that eats lobsters called the moray eel so twice she's reached into a hole 
trying to get a lobster has been bitten by a moray eel. And the second time, it was so bad she had to go to the hospital to get stitches, and the hospital's 50 miles away. Anyway, we decided that needed to have a song written about it, so the song's called That's Amore. When the eel makes you feel like your hands its next meal, that's Amore. When you're out on the reef and it's green with big teeth, that's amore. When a lobster you spot, but that's not what you caught, that's amore. When you, you're diving at night and you feel a big bite, that's amore. Put your hand in a cave, are you foolish or brave, that's amore. When you see sharp teeth wave as you peer in that cave, that's amore. It's a fish, not a snake, but your hand it will take, that's amore. When you see a green log that's just like a mean dog, that's amore. With your teeth sharpest blade and your hand it's filleted, that's amore. When you swim in the nude and the eel thinks you're food, that's amore. Excuse me, but you see, back in Agua Verde, that's amore. You've been listening to The Trail Less Traveled, Missoula's source for outdoor information and inspiration. I want to thank my guest for this week, Steve Smith. Guitar Steve lives in Northern California for part of the year in the artistic community of Yokayo. The other part of the year, Steve drives down to Baja California Sur to camp on the beach on the Sea of Cortes. Steve shares these adventures with his cat, Margarita. Steve lives the simple life and calls himself... A bon vivant. Steve is called Guitar Steve down in Baja because he can most often be located sitting in his comfortable chair on the beach playing guitar and hasn't owned a TV since the 1960s, although he did attend film school in London and enjoys good films. Find us on Facebook and take a look at trail1033.com to view pictures, read biographies, podcast previous shows, and discover suggested links from all of the guests featured on The Trail Less Traveled. Mi nombre es Mandela, your host of The Trail Less Traveled, the Trail 1033's locally harvested outdoor adventure series, which aims to take its listener back to mankind's earliest form of entertainment, storytelling. If you know of someone with good adventure stories, please contact me. For every week, I will be interviewing an adventurer about what they do, how they do it, and how the community can start adventuring in the same fashion. My adventure tip this week is to always know where your bandana is. A bandana is one of the most versatile items you can take on the trail, or the boat, or the plane, or the mountain, or wherever you're adventuring. You can use it for washing, 
Wear it as sun protection, strain water, keep the sweat out of your eyes, and even use it as a makeshift first aid tool. And of course, you can still use it to blow your nose. Missoula, what can you do for the Clark Fork River this week? Conserve water. Instead of letting the water run while you try to scrape the dried-on food from your pots and pans, just soak them. This will not only save water, but time and energy too. That's it for this week, Missoula, but until next week, get out there and shred the gnar. Because you know the thing about the gnar is, it simply doesn't shred itself. <laughs>